It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs>
broadcasting live to billions of people. Camels on the streets tracking who we meet and call this liberty. Now, I have several other courses coming up on uh, December 6th and 7th. 
we have the Grid Down Communications course. This is a course that uh, I've been telling you about from uh, Sparks 31, and it's going to be a two-day course, one day of classroom and a one-day field training exercise where you actually uh, use your equipment to make contact uh, with the rest of the world and figure out how to do that. And at the same time, uh, and one of the, the most important aspects I think that we're going to be learning is how to use your communications equipment to set up uh, the basis for your intelligence gathering operations. Because in a grid down situation, one of the most important things you're going to need to know is what's going on around you, what's happening in the rest of the world, but especially what's happening in your neck of the woods. And the way you do that is by listening to the uh, to the electronic information that's going to be being broadcast over the air. So uh, this is going to be a, a really great class, and you can get more information about it by going to www.battleroadusa.com. And uh, look at the top of the page, and you'll see the, uh, the option for training. Click on that. And then click on the grid uh, down, three percenters, grid down communication course that's uh, upcoming. Uh, we also have a Ghost of Goliad. That's the two-day fundamentals of rifle marksmanship course. And this course uh, is designed to give you uh, all, of the, all of the fundamentals. It's not a basic course or a baby course. This is a fundamentals course. This is the information, the skills, the techniques that you'll need uh, no matter where your shooting path is going to take you, because everything you do when you're firing a uh, when you're using a rifle is going to need to be supported by the fundamentals. That's if, you're, if you have any intentions at all of making the shot, you're going to have to obey the fundamentals. You have to know what they are, and you have to implement them. And that's what we're going to teach you in the the two days, as well as giving you a uh, a big uh, a burst of information about the Texas War for Independence, which very closely paralleled the American Revolutionary War. And uh, at the same time, there'll be top-of-the-hour introductions to self-reliance and prepping topics. We're not going to try and teach you a bunch of uh, self-reliance and prepping stuff. What we are going to get you to do is to think about things that you need to do and the things you need to think about and learn if you have any hope of becoming self-reliant, things like water. Uh, things like uh, fire starting, uh, food storage, things like that. Our main goal is going to be teaching you the fundamentals. But while you're there, we want to give you a dose of Texas history because in order for you to understand where you're going, you need to know where you have been and then introduce you to the idea that you better start thinking about ways to become self-reliant, ways that you can take care of yourself and your family just as your grandfathers did uh, two generations ago. I always laugh because I think whenever I'm doing these, these uh, the self-reliance and prepping courses and stuff, that I can imagine the folks going home, rushing home, and, and maybe talking to their grandparents and saying, hey, listen, we learned how to do a bunch of stuff today, like how to take care of ourselves, like how to build a fire, how to get clean water, how to store food and stuff in case something happens. And I can envision the uh, the grandparents looking at the person telling them this and saying, What 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 has happened? What has happened to our to our nation that 
that these people are excited about this and they think this is this is something new because this is something that our grandparents and our great grandparents did as part of their lives. And that's not me saying that I'm that I'm, that I'm not happy that, that these guys are getting excited getting excited about it and uh, telling their their grandparents about it. And I'm just saying it it seems a bit humorous to me. <clears throat> All right, then we'll have uh we'll have a, a small game and beef uh uh harvesting and uh, preparation course uh that will be sometime between the December course and uh and the end of January. What I'm doing now is I'm getting feedback from the folks that like to attend the course so that uh, we can schedule it on a date when everybody's available. It's a perfect time to do it now because the weather's finally turned cool. That means that uh, we can process the uh, the uh, the beef in the game, and uh, and I can also, uh, after it's processed and everything, after the course and everything, I can also go ahead and uh, and hang sausage and hams and stuff like that because it needs to be a little bit cold for me to do that, to hang them in the smokehouse. <laughs> All right, uh our guest tonight is Mike Vanderbo from uh, the Sipsy Street Irregulars. Mike is a, uh, to me, he exemplifies the uh, what I would like to see as the as the American citizen, the American patriot. Uh, he's the originator of the term three percenter, which has become uh, quite quite a quite a term now, and. Uh, and lead uh, leader of the Sipsy Street Irregulars, and uh, I'd like to go ahead and, uh, and bring him on now, Mr. Vanderbo. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, sir. Glad to be here. Uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time out because I know that uh, I know that you've been really very busy the last few weeks, and uh, and I appreciate you giving us this time. First of all, can can you tell us a a little bit about yourself and the folks that aren't regular readers of Sipsy uh, Street about who you are, where you're from, how you, how you ended up at uh, where you are now and uh, at Sipsy Street? Well, I'm a transplanted Yankee. I uh, I was born in Michigan, a very proud Wolverine. Uh, at the tender age of three, I was hijacked to be raised amongst the heathen Buckeye, as my Michigan relatives saw it. And uh, uh, I uh, grew up in Ohio, but um, I refugeed out of there in 85, fleeing the Wicked Witch of the North, my ex-wife. And uh came to Alabama and uh, met a girl down here and uh, married her, which uh, makes me a peculiar kind of cursed Yankee to some folks around here. And uh, I not only come down to stay, but I I married a southern girl. She's from Arkansas, though. I've been with her now for 29 years. They don't divorce. They commit homicides. I'm with her till I die one way or the other. Yeah, um, yeah. It's important to know that going in, you know. And She explained it to me right up front, you know. Said, you know, if you ever cheat on me, I kill you. I won't need a gun because there's plenty of knives around here, and you got to go to sleep. So, you know, once you have that explained to you, it's uh, uh, it's just a choice that well, you got to make. 
And I made it, it makes it a lot simpler, right? Well, you know, it it, it certainly does. Um, better mind your P's and Q's. Don't let the wrong head do your thinking for you. Do that, and you're all right. <laughs> but uh, uh, I uh, I uh, enjoy the South. I, you know, I've embraced my my uh, adopted state, and I think they they uh, embrace me. Back during the 90s, you know, when we were forming militias, we had a meeting, and I, I ended up getting elected a leader. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, I said, you know, by you fellers' lights, I'm a, I'm a particular kind of cursed Yankee. Said, you know, why'd you, why'd you elect me? And there's this uncomfortable silence, and in the background, finally, the fellow raises his hand. He says, well, heck, Mike. He says, you're right. You're a GD Yankee. Of course, the way they say it, it's all one word, you know, no no right. uh, capitals. And he said, yeah, you're a GD Yankee, but look at it this way. We put you out front and you get killed. We ain't lost nothing, have we? <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of lets you know ahead of time, just like my wife, you know, it just kind of lets you know ahead of time where you stand. It's, it's, it's important not to take yourself too seriously or... Or to take yourself seriously, depending on the on the situation. But um, I uh, still was not very political at this point in time. And then came Waco and Ruby Ridge, and a number of other things convinced me that uh, that I had to get back involved in in becoming an American citizen. And you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Um, I was involved in the militia movement. Uh, I uh, helped out with the private investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, we had our own little Cold War going with the Clinton administration, and especially with the three-letter agencies, the FBI and the ATF, and uh, made myself a, a nuisance to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I've been on their uh, spit list for... 20 years now. I'm proud of that. That's my oh yeah, in, yeah. I, I, I was reading that uh, yesterday. I was reading your 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 the wonderful write up they gave you at SPLC. Yeah, well, you know, like my good friend uh, uh, Kurt Hoffman says, he's out of St. Louis. He says uh, it is better to be despised by the despicable than admired by the admirable, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's quite true. That's quite true. But um, then, uh, I don't know, uh, see if I can sum up the last uh, 20 years of that. Uh, I, uh, well, you were, you, were, uh, you were head of the, uh, the Sons of Liberty, right, back in the 1990s? Yeah, that, was a, uh, that sort of led me to the militia movement. The Sons of Liberty was a clandestine outfit uh, uh, spread from, I'd say, the... Uh, Upper South to uh, oh, the Upper Midwest, um, and I, uh, I I first got involved with that. Then um, somebody was a little bit indiscreet, and I ended up uh, being outed more or less. So I figured if I was on the stage, I might as well dance, and I uh, that's when I kind of went public, and. Um, uh, 
we uh, did a lot of stuff back then. Uh, didn't know which way uh, which way the Clintons were going to jump. I mean, they'd they'd uh, killed the folks at Waco, and when it became obvious that 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 was a, a, a mass murder on the part of our government, uh, it, it really told us everything we needed to know. That, that as far as they were concerned, we were all Davidians now, and uh, they could do anything we couldn't stop them from doing. That's where the militia movement came from, from that whole desire to for self-preservation and, and to... To, uh, as a response to the militarized police, the federal police, but also local police as well. And uh, uh, if if you want to try to recapture what some of that uh, was like, uh, I would suggest to your listeners that they get a book by uh, Professor Robert Churchill called To Shake Their Guns in the Tyrant's Face, which is uh, the last third of it is the history of the militia movement back then. And it's the, the only, as far as I've run across, the only intellectually honest presentation of uh, of what happened back then. As a result, he's run afoul himself of the Southern Poverty Law Center and other folks who, who you know, try to sell people on the idea that, uh, that we're the terrorists and not the government. But give um, uh, a chance. It's called uh, To Shake Their Guns in the Tyrant's Face by Professor Robert Churchill. And uh, you'll you'll understand a lot about where the militia movement came from and and what we tried to do back then. But then uh, I was I helped out with the Minutemen in uh, 2005 out on the border. My my good friend Bob Wright invited me to to come out, and we we got together a, a couple of reconnaissance teams and, and took them out there. And that was a that was an interesting experience, very very uh, uh, educational, in just about the worst sort of way that you could think of. Learned a lot more about about the border and and how tenuous the lives of people are out there, thanks to our government. Right. You know, which of course at the time was the Bush administration. You know, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of proud of the fact that I've been on the enemies list of the last three White Houses. Um, the Bushies didn't like me. I I opposed the uh, uh, Patriot Act as you know vehemently as I could. But I there was a, a gap in there after I was helping out the Minutemen where I was thinking, well, okay, we'll just uh, crank back and work on my personal stuff. And then the ATF set up a guy named uh, Olson. Up in uh, Wisconsin, David uh, David didn't do anything other than than uh, gain the ire of his local ATF office. He, they ended up putting a snitch on him, and he was a marksmanship instructor. And unbeknownst to him, uh, he uh, he loaned the guy a rifle. The guy then uh, took the rifle to a range where conveniently there were law enforcement guys there and the rifle began to stutter. So they uh, uh, charged him with transferring a full auto weapon. Now the, the problem was that they couldn't make it 
do that reliably. In fact, it wasn't a, a full auto weapon. It was simply a worn-out semi-automatic rifle that was broken. The ATF sent that to their uh, uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia facility. That's what the experts told them. This is just this is not a full auto weapon. It's a malfunctioning semi-automatic rifle. And so the ATF uh, agent, one Judy Kiku, who later left her pistol in an Air Force or an airport restroom, Kiku sends the thing back with the notation, no, you will find that it's a machine gun. Uh, try using soft primer ammunition, which they did. And, of course, you know if, if you use soft primers and you seat them just right, you can make anything you go full You could possibly do it, right. And, uh, and so that's what the, the feller was convicted on. Now, he made a lot of lot of mistakes himself. He he didn't have a lot of money and he, he didn't have good representation and didn't really bring in the experts until the end of his case. The problem was that even once he got a firearms expert there, um, the judge refused to allow the expert to examine the weapon. And they ended up railroading the poor guy. And that outraged me. I mean, in a way that I can't tell you how deeply angry I was. And I realized, you know, you may think that you can get out of this, but, you know, nobody can escape this. You're going to have to keep doing what you're doing. So I started writing uh, guest columns for for various blogs, David Codria's War on Guns among them. And uh, pretty soon I was making myself such a nuisance that people said, look, you know, I'm getting tired of putting your stuff up. Why don't you get your own blog? So I did. And that's where such street irregulars came from. And, uh, you know... And that's been... uh... That's been quite a few years now. Well, uh, Sipsy Street started in, I think, late 2008, early 2009. It's been, gosh, I don't know. Let's take a look here. See what what my overview is. Since then? Well, in 2008. Since then, I have have done 12,472 posts. And uh, I regularly get somewhere between eight and ten thousand hits. Back when we broke the Fast and Furious scandal, we were we were getting sometimes twenty, thirty thousand hits a day. But um, yeah, it's 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 been a lot of work. I tell you that it's it's hard to keep the keep the beast fed. When, uh, when yeah, and and look there. at that. Look at Fast and Furious. It is. It is right in. It, it is as wide open to the American people as it can be, and nobody can do anything about it because, you know, a while ago you made the comment about about you being uh, uh, in opposition or or in uh, uh, causing some grief for uh, for uh, administrations on both sides of the aisle and. I tell folks all the time that uh, it, it has been it's been many decades since it has mattered really uh, that much who has been what they, what's in front of their name or after their name uh, when they've been in power uh, it's all leading to the same place but the the fast and furious folks apparently are going to skate I can only imagine that it's because by the time you get up to a level like Holder 
uh, everybody up there in Washington is dirty. Everybody's dirty. And and when you have somebody at that level, they know they've got the dirt on, on everybody, on both sides. And and nobody wants to touch them because it's like, uh, you know, uh, some hot uranium. Nobody wants to put their hands on it. Well, I can tell you specifically what our uh, sources tell us about um, uh, Fast and Furious and and what happened to it. Um, You see, the ATF was really only tasked with uh, two parts of the conspiracy. They were tasked with encouraging the uh, gun dealers to sell weapons to the straw buyers and to follow the straw buyers, the middlemen and document the transfer of the weapons from the dealer to the straw buyers and and then handing it off. But they were specifically warned not to go after the middlemen. The other part of the conspiracy that the ATF was entrusted with was um, counting the statistics as the Mexicans would enter these serial numbers as they uh, showed up uh, next to the bodies of of these poor dead Mexicans in order to verify that uh, uh, these were were, uh, arming the cartels, therefore to uh, make what the political point that they wanted to make, which was they needed another assault weapons ban. And... uh, uh, but the middle part of the conspiracy and where the thing eventually uh, was uh, the investigation came apart on was entrusted to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The middleman, it turns out, and this was reported by uh, by us and by uh, uh, William Lodginess at Fox, the middleman turned out to be FBI informants called the Miramontes brothers. The Miramontes brothers had actually been fired by uh, the uh, DEA and by the Border Patrol as informants because they had violated the rules that had been put in place after Whitey Bulger in uh, Boston. Um, Right. You know, you can't, you can't, have a uh, informant that goes around killing people on the government dime. So he was uh, these the Miramontes were cut loose, and then they were picked up just in time by the FBI. And they, in fact, were the millet, excuse me, the uh, uh, middlemen who were seeing that the weapons got south of the border. Now, when we reported this. Naturally, uh, by this time, Daryl Isis' investigation is going, and uh, uh, he wanted to pursue that. And the next thing that we knew, John Boehner was was down in uh, Daryl Isis' face telling him that there was no way that they were going to investigate the uh, FBI, that he was going to leave the FBI strictly alone. and. there was, you know, according to our sources, a, a raging, screaming fight in uh, ISIS's office, which ended with uh, 
ISIS saying, all right, we won't investigate the FBI. Um, we're going to find Holder in contempt of uh, Congress. Boehner did not even want to do that, but uh, ISA held out and made it his price for uh, dropping the investigation of the FBI. And so that is, is how the thing got short-circuited. And the uh, sources, our sources, say that uh, the FBI was able to accomplish that because they very simply pulled out Boehner's FBI file and found something to blackmail him with. What that is, right. we don't know. I mean, for all I know, it might be a picture of him with a sheep. But uh, uh, that was uh, that was the end of the congressional investigation of, uh, of Fast and Furious, and that was how, I mean, if you look at it, it, none of it makes sense without knowing the FBI portion of of uh, the conspiracy. Once you know about the FBI, oh, and the other thing that, that uh, uh, Boehner insisted upon was that he quit following up the leads that led to, the, to Kevin O'Reilly and the National Security Council. Well, I mean, when you... When you gut an investigation like that, when you when you artificially close off uh, clues like that, uh, no, you're not going to get the truth. But the FBI got exactly and precisely what they wanted. So did uh, uh, so did uh, Eric Holder. But I suspect that that uh, if they hadn't run afoul of the FBI, that we we might have gone farther. But then again, um, the FBI is very, very much more dangerous than the ATF. I always said that uh, had uh, John Dodson worked for the FBI, he would have ended up as an anonymous statistic buried in the desert somewhere, and none of us would have ever heard of Fast and Furious. Because right, and everybody those thinks are very dangerous people, the FBI, more so than the ATF. Right, everybody, and you know, I, I was the same way. I always thought, growing up, and everything uh, that the FBI was the uh, was the the ultimate good guy, clean, straight organization. But uh, over the last uh, twenty years uh, of of reading the history and investigating them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this the FBI is one of the most dangerous uh, organizations uh, that uh, that citizens, American citizens, are facing. They've got their hands in every everything that's uh, that has gone on bad. Uh, you know, here it is. Uh, uh, let's see, 20 years after the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. And it's still they're they're still they still have everything wrapped up tight there. They don't want to release any information on that. I had uh, Tom Stalkup, the uh, uh, one of the writers and uh, and directors for the uh, the movie TWA Flight 800 on, and uh, and the amount of just uh, just blatant overt cover up that they did uh, for that aircraft crash was unbelievable just just absolutely unbelievable i think that most of the government agencies have gotten to the point where they understand they can do 
whatever they want. They can do whatever they want now, and and they're going to get away with it. Yeah, of course, you know, when Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22, uh, most people, uh, uh, even even those that, uh, that have read it, tend to forget this. But Catch-22, as originally expressed, was not, you know, getting caught in a contradiction. Catch-22 was, we can do anything you can't stop us from doing. That's Catch-22. Right. And uh, uh, the government has been playing uh, along those lines for, for quite a while. It, most people don't understand why the, the Davidians died on the 19th of April. Um, you know, recall that the that the uh, ATF had done the raid uh, on the 28th of February, um, that four agents had been killed by the Davidians in righteous self-defense, according to the to the uh, Texas jury that, that heard the case later on. Right. Um, and uh, then there was the so-called standoff, where the Davidians were were uh, cut off from from any uh, possibility of, of communicating themselves with the press, which was itself, you know, part of the plan. The FBI only dared do what they did because the Davidians couldn't get their own uh, narrative out of, uh, and and they couldn't humanize themselves, and uh, so the you know the uh, the FBI was able to do what they did, but they determined to take the thing down on the 19th of April because the 19th of April was Elliot Ness's birthday. And many of your listeners probably don't know this, but Elliot Ness has always been uh, considered to be the patron saint of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. ATF, to this day, has Elliot Ness birthday celebrations and golf tournaments on the 19th of April. And uh, if you recall, when uh, the uh, Mount Carmel began to burn, one of the first things that the FBI did was they rushed in while the building is still burning furiously in the background and, you know, those babies are being immolated. They struck the Davidian flag off the flagpole. And they raised the flag. Put their own, their own flag up. Mm-hmm. It had, no, it was the ATF flag. It said ATF on a blue background with four gold stars. Okay, and, and those of us that were paying attention understood immediately. This is the FBI sending a message. And the message is, if you kill federal agents, we will kill you. Kill you 20 to 1. We will kill your old men. We will kill your women. We will kill your babies. We will burn you to death in your church, and we will shoot into the back of that church to keep you from escaping. All right? That was the message. The message is we are the imperial federal government, and we can do anything you can't stop us from doing. The flag and the date were the two principal clues. And once we figured that out, the uh, the rest of it became clear. These people were murdering their own citizens on 
the tax dollar. I mean, not even King George III was as, as evil and as calculating as the FBI at Waco. And naturally, uh, they, they got a militia movement uh, in payment for it because, you know, we're, we're Americans. And if, if the political situation breaks down to the point where we understand that it's not going to protect us, then we'll make our own arrangements. You see that today. If you if if you cannot count on the political parties to protect you, and I'm I'm with you and with Pat Buchanan who said that the Democrat and Republican parties are two wings of the same bird of prey. I'm absolutely on the same page with you there. And uh, yeah, there there will the be American- small things. There'll be there'll be little things that uh, each side has uh, that will push that uh, that will allow them to count themselves as. Different. The reality is, I, they they no longer serve us. They no longer care about the citizens. They simply wish uh, to continue on being in power. That's their that's their only goal, as far as I can tell, is for them for them for themselves to be in power. For them to continue to be able to uh, to govern. Uh, or lord over the citizens. I don't know, it seems to me that they really lost all any serious idea of representing the citizens. No, it's it, it's all kabuki theater. It, it's all a shell game uh, with uh, with the rules rigged and and uh, and the players understanding that. Uh, well, you know, we might lose this election, but you know, we'll get it back next time. You know, it's just a matter of. Uh, who we got a fool and and uh, and the ups or downs. That's why I'm, I always get a little uh, uh, gassy, I suppose is one way to put it, when uh, people spend a lot of time, you know, uh, worrying about well, you know, there's this fighter in some central web and they're manipulating everything, right? You know, um, there's a whole lot of spiders in this world, and uh, I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, but uh, uh, each of those spiders has his own web, and spiders often eat each other. You know, so yeah. looking for someone, looking, you know, tr- wasting time trying to figure out, you know, who's the who's the 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 single person, and you can, you know, I mean, insert anything, you know, uh, the trilateralists, the uh, uh, the CFR people, the uh, 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 Rosicrucians or whoever, you know. I mean, I mean, when you when you get pulled into to to that sort of thing, you're you're really wasting time because there's a whole lot of people out there trying to steal your liberty. Okay? I mean, just just understand that that um, you know if you want to be uh, able to to deal with any of them, then you need to understand it like the founders did. Which is, you know, have a, a well-regulated, wide-awake armed citizenry, and uh, the solution then is the same, regardless of, well, of who's trying to steal your liberty. Well, speaking of a of a warned wide-awake citizenry, citizenry, uh, and we kind of discussed just uh, by emails. Uh, can you tell folks? Uh, can you tell folks what what the purpose is behind uh, Sipsy Street? What the 
what you would like for Sipsy Street to accomplish? Well, two things. I'd like to avoid a civil war if I can. Um, uh, and I do that by warning people that a, a civil war is, is possible. Um, the, uh, I mean, wars start because somebody on one side or the other doesn't understand uh, they can happen and begins making, you know, fatal miscalculations about uh, what they can get away with and what they can't. Uh, the other part of that is that um, uh, since uh, we're uh, fairly certain that uh, that such miscalculations throughout history have been made uh, to uh, to organize and, and, and uh, awaken people to the fact that not only are civil wars possible, but if you want to maintain your liberty, you better be ready to fight one. Um, you know, your listeners don't need an education from me how fragile the system is, how compromised, uh, how uh, uh, dangerous uh, and, and imminent the uh, probability of, of economic and societal collapse is. Um, and if we can avoid a civil war, my thinking is this, if we can avoid a, a, a fratricidal conflict of that type uh, and fight for our survival in the collapse, um, we're going to um, morally well, I've, speaking, I've worked with morally morally speaking you know the the latter is the is the conflict that, that uh we want to have you know if we can't avoid a conflict, then the best thing to do is uh, uh fight on on terms that that tend to strengthen us and uh and strengthen our case and what's going to happen when you know the zombie apocalypse comes or however you want to characterize it um even our enemies, uh, the people that are trying to disarm us, you know, the the, the useful idiots, if you will, um, to use Lenin's term, um, even those people will be coming to us and saying, oh, you were right about the guns. You're absolutely right. Would you protect the end of our street? Or, you know, please, God, loan me a shotgun, you know? I mean, right. we won't have to make we won't have to make the argument about uh, 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 the armed citizenry then. People will be begging us to show them what the armed citizenry is. For many years with uh, an organization called the Appleseed Project. And, uh, Great and that attention. in the beginning, yeah, well, in the beginning, that was, uh, that was a huge part of our message, which was, look, look you're going to have to get together right now. Now, we're going to teach you rifle marksmanship in case, in case the worst happens. But the whole point of this is for uh, is for you to get up, get out of your, get off your couch, get up and fight the soft war right now, so that you can avoid the hard war, and uh, and that was the message that we that we preach forever. Now I eventually left uh, Appleseed just because they they had morphed. 
from what they began is into uh, something completely different and and completely politically correct and commercial and and. Well, you weren't the only one to do that. I mean, you know, uh, certainly. Right, uh, right. No, there's there were there's a number been, of people. That as a matter of fact, I, I was a I was only there was only two of us left of anybody that had uh, been with the program in the beginning, and uh, I was the second to the last person uh, when I finally left. <clears throat> but my my point is that uh, that was the whole purpose of them in the beginning. It's not anymore, but that's what it was in the beginning. Was to get people to understand that look, you you got to do something. You you can't you can't sit there and do nothing because I know whenever I, I know I served overseas, I, I did a lot of stuff, and I thought because of what I had done that uh, that bought me a a free ride. Uh, you know, I had served my country, I'd done my bit, and I felt really foolish. Uh, when 20 years later I finally figured out there is no free ride. There is no end to your commitment to defend the rights and freedoms in this nation. There is no end to it. And the responsibility is for every single person. Nobody gets a free ride. Nobody gets uh, to uh, delegate their responsibilities. Everybody has to be involved. And right now that's, that's I think that's one of the main problems we have is that everybody thinks, like you said, uh, I think that a lot of people think that that our that our system is not fragile. That they think it's like a uh, like a concrete with uh, steel girders and and steel uh, supports holding it up. When instead it's like uh, you know it's like butterfly wings stretched over glass. Uh, as far as our the American system is, that it is very fragile and that it it could disappear very easily if people stop paying attention, which they pretty much have. So I I would agree I, with I that. Think that's one of the worst things that we face. You know, my grandfather on my mother's side was uh, uh, injured in a in a plant accident. Clark Equipment Company in St. Joseph, Michigan, in the uh, early 30s. He had maintained his job up until that point, but then they laid him off because he was no longer of use. And the, the the pension systems then were such that that you know they pretty much cut him cut him loose without uh, uh, any sort of uh, support network or, or payments and whatnot. Right. Now the first thing that he did was he uh, made his own arrangements. He figured out you know what uh, he needed to do to uh, to support his family. And it was tough. They ended up being uh, migrant workers. Okay, and and uh, heck, my mom almost died of uh, smoke of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning because they were driving around in the car from from field to field, uh, you know, picking. And uh, uh, yet, for all of that, my grandfather always blamed himself for his inability to hang on to his job, even though the accident certainly had not been his fault. But he held himself responsible that he had not been a good enough employee, that he had not been a a, uh, a, a good enough provider for his family to um, uh, hold on to that job. Now, fast forward to today. 
how many people do you suppose, if uh, uh, similar in similar circumstances, would blame themselves, or would would uh, uh, say, well, okay, um, I can't uh, I can't do for myself now or my family, so I expect somebody to come rescue me. The uh, the last thing in the world my grandfather would have uh, thought was that someone else ought to come and rescue him. Okay? Yet we have generation after generation now that's been raised with the idea that the government will come save you. Well, you get into a situation where the government not only won't come save you, but but everything that you have counted on from the government is all of a sudden transmuted from something of value to electrons that, that vanish in the air along with your uh, uh, non-functional EBT card. Um, such people do not react well to uh, adversity. They certainly don't react like my grandfather did. And, uh, and <laughs> you know, then you better watch out because cannibal armies will be on the march. If they if they uh, don't get uh, what they're used to, and uh, that's the rest of us uh, being put into the position of having defend to defend uh, against a society that will be in 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 free fall collapse. So well, that's what we have to have to be ready for. That's kind of what I was. Uh, I don't know if you heard it in the beginning of the. Uh, the program, but I was talking kind of about that when I said uh, that, you know, we on the show here, we, we do, quite often we'll do topics for a self-reliance prepping, stuff like that. And I've been, I've been working with the self-reliance uh, movement for uh, 20 years now. And, and I still get uh, a lot of folks uh, that, that come into the program new and, and they start doing stuff and, uh, they, uh, you know, they'll go back to their families and tell them about it, and uh, and I always laugh because uh, they'll tell they they want to go back to tell their families about it, what they're doing, and about this this great new idea they have, uh, you know, becoming self-reliant. And yet, just two generations ago, were our grandparents who, who, who that was that was how they lived their lives. You know, they. They kept food in the basement. They kept extra tools, equipment. They kept uh, hard currency because they had been through it before. For them, it wasn't an abstract idea that these that the government that the system can fail. It was a reality, and so they 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 never took it for granted or or thought of it in an abstract fashion. It was a reality for them. And in the last two generations, we've lost that. People people have lost the ability to take care of themselves or their families. And now we see them sitting on top of their houses with a, a cardboard sign that says, save me, you know, on a string around their neck. Yeah, um, and that's really, that's the killer, if you want to know the truth, is the inability that might happen. They are so used to um, being able to pick up the phone and dial 911 that the possibility that, Calling nine one one doesn't get you anything uh, is is absolutely uh, incomprehensible to them. They don't 
understand it and 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 frankly they think that people who believe that are you know rather nuts but in fact if you if you look at history the the one thing about human behavior about about, about uh, the societies that we they are ultimately all incredibly fragile and right. uh, uh, sooner or later something's going to come along and knock them over uh, an external enemy uh, but you know there's a, there used to be a saying it said those whom the gods would destroy they first make mad no those whom the gods would destroy or I'm a monotheist I, I believe in the god of uh, of uh, uh, David and, and uh, Abraham, um, uh, those who God would destroy first make complacent. Complacency kills uh, the inability to think that something bad can happen, and then consequently, uh, not being able to uh, uh, foresee what might happen and how you might uh, avoid it. That's what kills. It's 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 that complacency, and right. uh, and that that's that's a human thing that will that will always be with us. And yet, there are always people who, because they are not mesmerized by complacency, you know, for whatever reason, uh, uh, the way they were raised, you know, uh, they actually pay attention to the stories when. When uh, Grandma and Grandpa would talk about the Great Depressions, you know, like I did, um, they're the ones that uh, that will make it simply because they understand that uh, that these things are possible. It's just like with Civil War. Unless you understand that that, that such things are possible, then yeah, you're going to think that that someone who uh, who says that they're possible uh, is is nuts. But no, we're not. We're not nuts. We know exactly what's going on, and uh, and we've right. studied history. So right, and that uh, um, I'm going to jump ahead to another kind of uh, discussion on that right now because you know if you would have asked the folks uh, in Germany in the uh, you know in the 30s uh, time period, and Germany was a very cultured. Uh, they they were they were scientific they were uh, there was a very uh, i mean by no means was it a third world uh, uh, type nation you would ask them if they thought they would be uh, they would all wake up as nazis and that they would be uh, in the position that they would end up in just uh, a, a decade later I don't think any of them would have told you that that was a possibility. They they wouldn't have believed that. Uh, and there are still no. people still living today that that went through this, that saw this. This isn't when when people when people laugh at uh, citizens for saying that they uh, that they fear the government for uh, for whatever reasons. And the and the folks folks don't understand that. And they laugh at you. And they say what possible reason. Could you have to fear the government? The government is there to take care of you. And then, and then I tell them, I go, look, the, the government is the is the hugest mass murderer in history. 
I don't. I, I'm not saying that our government is playing this, or, or I'm just saying that it is certainly a possibility because it has happened over and over again uh, in the lifetime of people still living. Well, I mean, if if you if you look at the German example, um, the uh, no one. If you read the. the the diaries and, and, and the letters and, and, and the reminiscences. Um, no one believed that, that uh, uh, anything near the Holocaust would have happened in Germany. Historically, Germany had been amongst the more uh, tolerant uh, societies for Jews. Okay, they had. It was in Germany that they made the biggest inroads. It was in Germany that, that they rose highest in politics. I mean, it had. It certainly uh, didn't compare to, you know, Poland, for example. Um, and so, when the warnings came, when Hitler wrote, you know, very plainly what he intended to do to the Jews, they found it impossible to believe that it was anything more than political posturing. And consequently, they and every and the world that they knew was completely destroyed because they refused to believe it was possible. And, uh, uh, you know, today we, f- we find ourselves in in similar situation where people do not believe that tyranny in the United States is a possibility simply because, well, that hasn't happened yet. Well, you know, the Holocaust yeah. hasn't happened in, in Germany, right? Um, but the fact of the matter is that holocausts can happen at any time. And uh, uh, it's, uh, I don't know, you know, the founders the founders were so wise in, in, in so many ways. But, you know, they they understood that societies can go south. They, they understood uh, because they were historians. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why they, they uh, were as suspicious of unrestrained democracy as they were of, uh, of other forms of tyranny because they understood that, that you could be oppressed by a whole bunch of tyrants that live two, two miles from your house as well as, you know, a remote tyrant that, that lived 20,000 miles from your house. Exactly. And, uh, uh, and frankly, that's, that's what we're looking at today. You know, the present-day collectivists, um, believe that you know if they win an election, well they've won the argument, and uh, no, because whatever the election is, uh, it doesn't trump our natural rights. Does not, cannot ever, not not if uh, you're talking about free people. So uh, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm uh, wandering a bit in my in my argument here. I apologize for that. It's been a pretty exhausting week for me. But uh, right. Uh, well, well, I, I saw think, a recent I uh, a recent uh, 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 syllabus from several uh, from several several schools, and I I, I wish I would have uh, kept pulling up the information. But uh, what it was saying was that. Uh, they were teaching kids, and I believe this was uh, second graders and third graders, but they were teaching them that uh, 
the citizens' rights are derived from the government. The government gives the people the rights. Now, they didn't follow that to – they didn't try to explain the logical conclusion to that, to the uh, to these elementary school children. But uh, but if you read it, you can certainly follow it yourself, which is that which the government gives, the government can take away. And our rights were not given to us by the government. They were they were derived uh, as uh, as part of our our God given rights. Uh, we each of us have the rights uh, that are not derived by government. They're they're enumerated in the documents uh, provided to us by the founders, which are absolutely, like you said, these are absolutely brilliant documents. Uh, and and anybody listening, if you if you'll just go and read uh, these documents, uh, I think that you, that you can come to no other conclusion than the folks that wrote them, uh, even though it's uh, two and a half centuries ago, uh, and you may think that they, that them that they would have to be ignorant being uh, being from that time period, uh, you'll most definitely find yourself uh, wrong because the documents were brilliantly crafted. Uh, but that is what is, that is the direction that the government is pushing so hard in now. And that is uh, trying to make uh, the citizens understand or trying to make them think that, look, we gave you these rights and we can take them away. And uh, Right. And, and of course, this is one reason why they hate, this is one reason why they hate homeschoolers, right? Because because the homeschoolers are not uh, uh, subject to you know that sort of uh, propaganda and manipulation. Uh, the kids aren't because because they're being raised by uh, people who are at root suspicious, to say the least, of the sorts of things that are being taught in the public school. Um, which is why you know the the regime. Um, despises uh, homeschoolers, which, you know, I think is a powerful argument for, for homeschool. Um, right. You know, I mean, homeschooling is perhaps just as, when you're talking about self-reliance, homeschooling is just as important, if not the most important thing, that someone who intends to be to be free and self-reliant can do. Don't let the government program your children. Well, listen, going back to... <clears throat> Going to the, back to the subject of Germany, uh, I recently read one of the articles that uh, that you posted on Sipsy Street. And listen, the guys, uh, I'll, I'll post this again in the notes and everything else. But uh, you can do this right now when we're talking. You can go over to SipsyStreetIrregulars.blogspot.com, or just put in Sipsy Street in the Google search engine, and it'll whip it up there for you in, a, in, a, in however many milliseconds it takes. And start reading through some of the the information that gets posted there, and read on a regular basis. I recently read an article there, and the uh, like the gist of the article was when is uh, what is the stopping point, or when is enough going to be enough? And where you were talking about uh, when when is when the is line the line crossed? Cross, I think. Yeah, when is right. the line crossed? And I talked about the Germans and uh, and uh, how they were ready to resist Hitler 
but they were only ready to resist Hitler if the orders came from Berlin. And if they were only ready to resist Hitler if Hitler overthrew the government in a coup. And when he was able to take over using the political forms of the day, and their leadership was paralyzed by indecision, the entire organization, we're talking about the, the, uh, uh, the Reichsbanner, the uh, uh, militia people that yeah. had and, and that was had, a uh, sworn huge organization. To the, to the, to the, oh, absolutely. Much, much over a million than, men, not, under, and they, they were armed, over a million men. Right. But uh, uh, they, being German, uh, waited for orders. And, uh, uh, you know, my point was, and there's actually, uh, that was an earlier essay that I reprinted, and then I did two more on, on top of that on right, the same right. subject of, of, you know, where's the line cross? Well, what, in an American context, all we have to do is maintain our readiness and maintain our attitude, and sooner or later, they will cross the line for us. Okay, because because uh, uh, they will attack us and thereby seed the moral high ground. And frankly, that's the job of of people like me is to make them so crazy with with uh, resentment that people are not falling into line. They're not obeying their dictates. That uh, sooner or later they uh, they come to kill one or more of us, at which point it's it's Katie bar the door, fourth generation warfare, and uh, uh, they'll uh, they'll regret ever having taken that decision. Right. As Americans, as Americans, we are not programmed as the Germans, and uh, uh, nor were we uh, uh, programmed like like any number of of peoples that have fallen victim to uh, uh, to tyranny and to genocide, okay? We're not, you know, one African tribe being being chopped to death by, you know, another African tribe from or by, with machetes, okay? We're not uh, East, German, East European Jews who cling to the fact that, well, you know, they'll, they'll come in and they'll beat us up a little bit, but they'll let us live because they need us. Right. Okay? We're, we have the advantage of the history of the 20th century. All we have to do is pay attention to the history of the 20th century, and that tells us what to do. I mean, that's, it, and it tells that's us, the problem. Know, that's the problem is that, is that so many people aren't. You know, they, you, you hear people all the time saying, good grief, you know, how could they, how, like the Germans, how could they let this happen? Why didn't anybody try and stop the Nazis? And the answer is that, that they they did, or they they were going to, uh, like you, like we were talking about with the Reichsbanner. These guys, these guys had the muscle; they could have done it. But the problem was, they only had the one plan. They just had the one plan. They didn't have any other plans. And when the when their particular uh, starting their ignition point never materialized. They never, they never mobilized. Nothing ever happened. But, but they could have. They could have done something, but they didn't. And then they all ended up waking up one day, and guess what? They were all Nazis. But I, I sometimes fear that we could, we could 
fall into the same problem here. You have we have millions of Americans who are ready to jump on Facebook or onto a forum somewhere or, or call into a radio station <laughs> and say, "Hey, yeah. I'm 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 a I'm a patriot." And listen, uh, they'll never if they get out there and they try to confiscate all the guns at once. Well, then I'm going to fight. Yeah, but what happens if that doesn't happen? Because that's not the government isn't that stupid. They they know well, that, that that would be a flashpoint. So they do it in little tiny increments. They just bite off one finger at a time. And figure people say, well, I can do without that little finger. I wouldn't even want a ring on it. I don't use it to hold my my cigar. I can do without that. And and they're eating away a little bit, a little bit. And so, what happens with this with this huge group of millions of patriots who say they're going to they're they're standing ready to defend liberty and freedom and rights if their particular uh, ignition point never materializes? Well. Several things, uh, I would say in response to that. First, first, uh, you know, you, you reminded me when you talk about the people who get on Facebook of a phrase that uh, David Codry uses. He calls such people Molon Labians. <laughs> okay. They, they, shout, they, they shout Molon Lobby when, when in fact they're, 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 I don't know if I can say this on the air, but they're pussies, all right? Um, uh that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that's the whole point of the three percent. The three percent harkens back to uh, to the Revolutionary War and the fact that that only about three percent of the colonists actively took the field against the king. All right. Um, in fact, by the end of the war, there were actually more colonists fighting for the king than there were in in the field uh, fighting for the revolution. Um, but we still won. Right. 3% was enough. 3% is enough today. History is always made by determined minorities. So forget the, the, the Molon Labians and forget the, the Elmer Fudge, you know, who say, oh, yeah, well, you can take his black rifle as long as you leave me my double-barrel shotgun. Forget right. all that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean a thing. Right. What, what matters is the people who draw the line and said, no, we're not going there. I mean that's that's the first the first thing is as long as there is an irreducible number of of uh, people a determined minority and remember our enemies are simply a determined minority we we uh, uh, act on the same battlefield and really on the same principles they push people around uh, expecting that that they will uh, uh, be able to get by because they always have right. They've never run into people like us. It's one of the reasons why they call us gun nuts and, and uh, uh, well, you know, a couple of the uh, terms that the ATF uses for us that have been picked up by the anti-gun people lately are, are gun queers and barrel suckers. Right? Um, right. They they doubt our sanity because they can't explain us in their worldview, which is you know, it has no bearing in, in reality. It's a it's a secular religion, um, you know, based on uh, on uh, a godless faith. Um, but uh, they they say that we're crazy because they don't understand us. They extrapolate from their own cowardice and say that uh, well, you know, if the government told me to do something at the cost of my life, well, I'd uh, you know, yeah, I'd do it because you know it's not worth it. They don't understand people who will fight and, and die for principle. 
and they especially don't you know follow the thought out that, that people who are willing to die for their principles are also most often willing to kill and righteous self-defense of them as well. So they don't understand us. The only important thing is that we understand them, and that that you know we draw the line that we won't cooperate. And I had this conversation with uh, we call them prags or pragmatists, you know. I had this conversation some years ago with a guy who uh, said, well, you know, um, I'll just make my compromise. I said, no, you don't get it, do you? I'll make sure they come to your door. They're going to come to your door because when they come to my door, I'm going to shoot them. And, and, and they're going to make sure that anybody who has a firearm is going to be disarmed, which means they're going to come to your door one way or the other. Like it or not, whatever kind of politically correct firearm you have, the people who resist are going to make sure by their resistance that to come to your door. They're going to put you on the boxcar, man, so you better decide right now whether you're going to get on the boxcar or you're going to shoot the guy that's trying to put you on the boxcar. And, boy, you know, he says, well, 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 don't you understand? I said, yeah, I understand perfectly. I just don't think you've thought it through yet. So why don't you take some time and think it through, all right? And, uh, uh, you know, and here's the uh, here's the, the final point that I would make on that, and that is that no tyrant in the history of the world has ever tried to tyrannize a nation that is so thoroughly armed. No one has no one has ever taken on population with as many firearms as we have. Or, or the percentage of firearms ownership that we have, okay? The, the founders understood that if you put arms in the hands of the people, they tend to shoot the tyrants that try to take them away from them. That's why they put the Second right. Amendment in the Constitution. And, and we have done them proud in that sense because uh, uh, thanks to, you know, very popular uh, firearm salesmen like, like uh, Bill Clinton and, and uh, now Barack Obama, who's put, frankly put Bill Clinton in the shade, um, these, these are firearm salesmen par excellence. And we now have far more firearms in this country and, 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 and uh, uh, far more uh, ability of a people to resist. No one's ever tried that before. You know, I had, a, I had an argument, well, it was an, it was an argument from his point of view, uh, he tried to pick one with me. He says, "Well, I think all guns should be banned. What do you think?" And you know, being being somewhat inexperienced and frankly a little slow on the uptake, I thought he wanted a serious conversation. So I began, and I was, we were talking about about you know reasons of of law and common sense. And he cut me off quick, and he says, "Now give me the short answer." I said, "You want the short answer?" <laughs> he says. Yes, give me the short answer. I said, okay. And here's the short answer for you. If you try to take our firearms, we'll kill you. Is that short enough for it? And, and you know, his eyes got real big. And he says, well, 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 you mean that? And I said, yeah, you're right. I do mean it. Okay. And there's a whole lot of other people that mean it. We're not the people who put bumper stickers on our, can have my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. We're the people who put the bumper stickers on our cars that say, Try to take my firearms, and it'll be your cold, dead hands that you have to worry about, not ours. Right, and, and the uh, 
And what you said earlier was absolutely correct. Every time in the history of this nation where where this nation's future has uh, straddled, has balanced on the edge of a knife, and the outcome was was not certain, it wasn't guaranteed, it wasn't in any way uh, foreseen as a certainty, the, the salvation of the nation had been brought about by the efforts of a of a tiny, dedicated few, and that's in every instance. A tiny, dedicated few have always uh, have always managed to to bring about the most dramatic change in defense of liberty in the nation. And and I think you're absolutely right. The the three percent in the during the American Revolutionary War, the it certainly wasn't what everybody thinks it was, where everybody was jumping up and down, uh, yelling for liberty, because that was for the first year of the war. They, they liberty wasn't even on the table, but uh, a third of the the nation wanted to remain loyal. Uh, a third of it wanted to want they wouldn't, didn't want any part of it. They just wanted to do tend their crops and live their lives uh, as peacefully as possible. And then another third. Uh, were involved in some way uh, in the revolution, but of that third, only a tiny, a tiny percentage of them were involved in the actual uh, physical uh, defense of the nation. We're talking about two million people in America, uh, but at the most, only fifty thousand uh, out uh, involved in this, you know, at any time and. And that's really a very a, a very percentage. If you look at the, the battles of uh, Princeton and Trenton, we're only talking about three thousand people uh, turning around the fate of a nation of two million. That's that's the way I look at the idea of the of the three percenter. That's my that's how I see the salvation coming from the three percenter. We don't have to be the majority. We just have to be the most determined. And there's one other there's there's one other thing here that's so important. You know, I introduce myself at speeches sometimes as a Christian libertarian. I say I believe in in God, you know, free men, free markets, the rule of law under the Founders' Republic, and that the Constitution extends to everyone regardless of race, creed, color, or religion. But you notice I first said I believe in God. Right? The founders believed in God. If you look at revolution and the tiny goals that and some were not so tiny that the whole enterprise turned on uh, when Washington needed to, to retrieve his army from Long Island God sends a fog and they're able to get out of Long Island you know when he desperately needed a victory he gave them uh, uh, Trent he gave them Princeton um, when uh, when we desperately needed the French to come in on the uh, on our side, and the French were unconvinced that we could win. And Dan Morgan at the Battle of Saratoga, with the with the uh, rebel left collapsing because of the the leadership of a very aggressive British General Fraser sends 
Tim Murphy up a tree and says, I want you to kill that man. And Tim Murphy's first shot hits Frazier's horse. His second shot mortally wounds him. And the, and the British attack collapses and leading to our victory at Saratoga. The single most important rifle shot in world history. <laughs> now, if, if anything could ever be a be an, an advertisement uh, or a, uh, a promotion for a rifle marksmanship, that's certainly one of the uh, one of the greatest examples is, is knowing exactly. how to actually uh, use your rifle. But could any of that happen without God's will? without his protective, protective hand on this country and our enterprise, okay? I mean, well, the, I the, the, British hated, the, the British hated what they called the Black Regiment, the, 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 the founding generation of, of, of preachers who set the stage for our liberty by preaching it to the rafters in their churches for, for, for tens of years before the before the revolution, okay? And so I say all of that to give you this caveat to the situation that we face today. And that is this right. country I... no longer turns its face to God. It turns its face away from God. It spits, in fact, in God's eye. And, you know, someone has to answer for 50 million dead babies. Someone will answer in the fullness of time for 50 million dead babies. That Holocaust puts the Nazis in the deep shade. And so you can spit in God's eye. Sooner or later, God will spit back. And when he does, civilizations collapse, cities dissolve in fire, entire peoples are enslaved. And my fear is that that may just be what God has in mind for us. And I pray every day that it isn't. I know that we're commanded to stand and to, and to do what, what you know, we feel his, his uh, will is, right? But I also know that sooner or later, despite you know, all of the, the entreaties by, by uh, mortal men, God found that there weren't enough righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah to justify keeping Sodom and Gomorrah around. And this country has plumbed the depths of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and excavate, excavated a few more floors down from it. And I, I fear that if God doesn't strike us down, he's going to have to raise up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize to them. And God doesn't do that. So that being said, as long as we keep our principles correct, as long as we keep our face turned toward God, we've got a chance. But it's only a chance. We should understand that. Because through our inattention, you know, through our, our, uh, uh, our carelessness, through you know, our, our sloth and our, uh, uh, our contentment, with getting by with our own lives and watching the rest of the country and the world go to hell. You know, we may have placed ourselves in a in a position where where when God spits back, you know, the innocent are going to be punished along with the guilty. 
But that being you know, said, a, regardless, of, uh, regardless of what God's intentions are, all right, we're still commanded to stand. We're commanded to stand for, for good, not evil. We're commanded to fight evil without becoming evil ourselves. And, uh, uh, and we're commanded to do that at the cost of our mortal life because, frankly, we win in the end and, and uh, we have an immortal life after. But, uh, uh, you know, that said, you know, we're stuck with the duty regardless of how it turns out. You know, we may be the ghost shirt society equivalent of, of today. You know, the, the Sioux had a had a, uh, a ghost shirt society that did the dances and thought that they could bring back the uh, uh, the uh, blessings of Wakantanka and and uh, and the buffalo would would range again and the Indians would be free on the plain. And they ended up getting killed by the Hotchkiss guns of the Seventh Cavalry, you know, for their pain. Right? And that could be that, that that's all we are is, is the modern equivalent of the ghost shirt society. On the other hand, we Mike. could be that irreducible uh, uh, determined minority that is able to, to do something that hasn't been done in world history, and that is to recover a republic that is so sunk in corruption and uh, mendacity. It's never happened before in world history. But then again, there's never been a republic like ours in world history. We are unique. You, know, you talk about American exceptionalism. We are unique in all of history. Right. There's never been, never been a republic like ours. And if we lose right. it, shame on us. Yeah, listen, I uh, just the thought of us being uh, the modern-day representatives of the ghost dancers is a horrifying thought to me. What a... What a horrible uh, and tragic uh, possibility. But, you know, the talking back to uh, the, when you were talking about uh, God's hand in, in, in our revolution, there's a book that I read quite a few years ago that I think is a, was a wonderful book that detailed a lot of this in depth. It's... Uh, it was called uh, uh, Almost a Miracle, The American Victory in the War of Independence yes. by John yes, Curley. Have you read it. that? Yes. I yeah, thought that very, was very, very amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's from the beginning all the way till, uh, uh, till well, you have uh, 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 Paul Revere rowing across the back bay, and on this particular night, the moon comes up in a different place. And this isn't uh, folk logic. This is recorded. Uh, this is recorded all across the colonies. But the moon came up in a different place. When the moon came up in a different place, the shadow cast uh, covered Paul Revere as he was rowing past the, uh, the British man of war. Uh, on and on. I mean, all of the, uh, all of the things that that should have happened to prevent uh, America from becoming an independent nation, uh, but he didn't. Uh, even Washington, uh, when he looked back at it, he said, look, he goes, this is, this is nothing short of a, of, a, of a standing miracle. Over and over, we should have 
we should have lost battles. We should have had uh, defeats, and and we certainly had we certainly had a good number of them, because I don't think as many people understand how close we came uh, to losing the American Revolutionary War over and over again. But but we should have lost. By all rights, we should have lost, but we didn't. Over and over again, due to due to what is ascribed to miracles, we became victorious. We became a nation. And I think that we became that nation for a purpose. And I think that that we have a duty to continue on uh, as a free nation with with whatever that purpose is that we should be that we've inherited the responsibility uh, for keeping the nation a free nation. We have. It's our duty. It's our time. You know, these things happen throughout history. Whether the, the pendulum swings around again and it points directly at you and commands you to live up to the things that you say you espouse. You know, when when you take an oath to defend the Constitution, the oath doesn't go away. It's, it, it, it's, it's there. It's, it's with you until you die. I mean, it's not, it doesn't come with an expiration date. You take that oath before God, and you have to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. There's many a man and many a woman who has taken that oath, who has profaned it, spit upon it, ignored it. But when you and I and likely uh, the vast majority of your listeners, when we take such an oath, a serious oath, seriousness so we also understand that it doesn't have an expiration date. And you know, the most that you can hope is that is that you can live in a time as we have lived in the, in a time I grew up in a time in a, in a different country really where no one locked their doors and, and uh, uh you know things we had our problems but but uh it was a time even in the middle of a of a cold war was a time of profound peace and growth and 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 all sorts of opportunity. But history is replete with dark ages. History is replete with with times where people have to have to summon up of their lives at the risk of their families' lives. What is necessary to to preserve them and their principles from the evil that that uh, Portent, and uh, we're coming to such a place. We're coming more rapidly than I care to think about. But we're, we're coming to that place, and I would right. Say, and we have uh, we have a through through the thoughts, the philosophy, and the writings of of the folks who founded this nation. And and I know that a lot of people say, look. The Constitution is just a piece of paper. Uh, you know, it can be it can be written over. It can be changed. It doesn't mean anything. What means what means anything is what we want to say today. But they don't understand history, and they don't understand that you can't 
that's like uh, that'd be like somebody saying, "Look, your your DNA isn't important. We'll just we'll rewrite it. We'll remake it into something else." But you you can't do that. That's what don't, makes don't you say who that you too are. loud. There's people today that there's people today that are trying to do just that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's who that, we are. It's what makes us who we are. We can't. We would no longer be America. If you threw that out, if you did something else, if you if you replaced it with something else, you, that's that's not the way that it works. Uh, the those documents are make us make us what we are, and in those documents uh, is a lot of wisdom. But part of the wisdom says that uh, that we have a duty, and this is what they thought when they wrote it. They they felt. That the 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 founding fathers felt they had they had a duty to rebel, and that I think that's very important for for folks to understand because it's what it means is they thought that they were with the they were complying with the commands of natural law and of and of and of God's law threw off uh, the 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 oppression the despotism they they weren't uh, they weren't Doing what they wanted, they were obeying what they felt was was natural law and God's law, and and I don't think that can be stressed enough. Uh, and they wrote quite often that it was that when the government was no longer uh, a represent, it no longer represented the people. That it wasn't just a uh, for something for them to think about they might should do. But they had a duty. They had a duty to replace it with a with a government that did respond to the people. Exactly. And I would suggest to your listeners too that just go to a dictionary and look up what duty is. Okay. Well, how is it defined? It's a moral or legal obligation, responsibility. All right. Another definition is a task or action that someone is required to perform required you don't you don't get your your choice of duty okay when you when you accept for example the mantle of being an american citizen that gives you rights it gives you opportunities but it also assigns you the duty that moral legal obligation that responsibility that that thing that must be done. That's what duty right. means. With the, it must with, be done. With a caveat too that the moral commitment should result in action. You can't just talk about you can't just talk about your duty to do something. You have to actually fulfill it. You have to actually do it. You have to do exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly, because because if all you do is talk, you're evading the duty. You're yeah, evading you the responsibility. You can't you can't no. just get get on uh, Facebook and post about it. Uh, you can't just tell people you have a feeling that it's the right thing to do, uh, or that you or that you personally you see this as a wrong. You you actually have to make a commitment to do something about it, to do something physical about it, other than pay lip service or writing about it. And I think that right. I think that if more people understood this, uh, I, I think it would go a, 
it would go so much longer. So many people, and I think this is one of the problems with folks that are that are that would term themselves conservatives, is that they 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 look at the things going on in government, or they look at the things that are that are going wrong, and they say, you know, that's wrong, and they and and they shouldn't do that. And I'm sure that that somebody will stop them because it's the right thing to do. But, and that's what all of the conservatives are saying, that somebody is going to stop them uh, because it's the right thing to do. Nobody has actually taken that step to go out and do the stopping. Uh, and then they see it, they see something like uh, like McCain-Feingold, and you have everybody in the world saying, oh, there's no way this is going to pass because, uh, you know, everybody knows it's wrong and uh, and it just won't pass. And then it passes and they go, oh, my gosh, how could that have happened? We all saw that it was a wrong thing. But nobody got out in front of it and and, and laid across the railroad tracks. Right. You know, um, uh, if you're sitting beside the road, and you know that around the corner, the bridge is out. And there's a little sign there that says the bridge is out, okay, put up by the government. It's official, right? Now you see a school bus full of children. It's being driven down a road by by uh, some crazy person who's got the wheel of the bus. The, the people on who talk regardless of doing something are analogous to, to someone that's sitting beside the road and they know that the bridge is out on the other on the other side of the uh, of the curve there and they see the sign and they're sitting there talking to each other and somebody says you know that bus is going to go around that corner it's going to go over that bridge and somebody should do something about that but they don't stir their stumps to jump out in the middle of the road and try to flag the driver down, do they? They don't right. uh, uh, do anything. They are as morally culpable as the people, as the guy behind the steering wheel. They're as morally culpable as the people who put the guy behind the steering wheel. Right? It's it's perfectly, from a historic point of view, you know, extrapolating that to to society. It's perfectly understandable what's about to happen. Everybody who pays any attention at all to history should understand what's what's about to happen. And so to do nothing is, you know, what was the the line? Um, uh, I must speak out, for I will not be an accomplice. If speaking out is fine. All right, and and that does indicate that 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 you're not going to be an accomplice, but you must act as well. You must follow up what you say you believe, otherwise it doesn't mean a thing. And frankly, that's how dictators get over on people. They don't mind what you say necessarily, at least early on. Now, eventually, they they get a little bit upset. They'll throw you in jail along with the rest of the people that actually tried to do something. But, you know, Hitler didn't mind that he was called names. Hitler minded who had the guns and who had the power. All right. collectivists are like that. Collectivists only understand force. 
It is what they deal in. It is what they they live with and for. It's power and force. I mean, it's like you know when after uh, World War Two, when Russian troops were still in Trieste, which was Italian soil, and um, uh, he heard that the Pope had condemned Russia, the Soviets, for still having troops in in Trieste, and Stalin looked. At, at Molotov and some of his other uh, cronies there, and said, the Pope, the Pope, how many divisions does he have? <laughs> That's what collectivists understand, is force. They don't care about anything else. They care about what you could do to them if you have sufficient force to do it to them. And so, so you know, people can 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 argue and complain and and you know have uh, have pragmatist gun blogs and and tell you what you know terrible thing is and how the NRA ought to do something all right but you know if you don't do something and that was the whole point you know how I got involved with with Connecticut you know when I uh, a year and a half ago I went there in April and gave a speech after they passed the law I said look if they're going to make you a lawbreaker then then you need to accept that fact you need to embrace it and try to become the very best and most successful lawbreakers you can be. And uh, because that's what they understand. They understand acts. You know, right. call them any name you want. But when you start acting against them, they cannot stand it. And, and they will modify their behavior. I mean, if you look at Connecticut again now for, with hindsight, they passed the law. 80, full 85% of the people initially were non-compliant. Now, in the meantime, the number's probably fallen a little. There have been people that voted with their feet and got out of Connecticut. Um, there's uh, people that uh, exported their guns out of state, and so they're technically in compliance with the law in the state. And um, uh, frankly, there's, there's probably people that, if they announced an amnesty uh, for registration, uh, they would probably turn them in. But whether the percentage is 85% or 3%, as long as there is an irreducible number of people who say, if you try to take our firearms, we'll kill you. You notice that the governor did not issue the orders to raid people because he wanted, first of all, to be reelected. Well, now that he's right. reelected, they're still holding on. My latest trip to Connecticut was, was very educational because I was able to talk to some people that had a little bit better sources on the inside than I did. And the fact of the matter is that the politicians are still scared of what will happen if they try to enforce the law. Now, they're not scared because these people uh, called them names after they passed the law. They're scared because these people refused to knuckle under to the law. They're scared because they understand that these people are armed, and now they don't know what to do. They know that, that, that there may be as many as 100,000 of their citizens who are armed and intend to stay that way and will shoot anybody that, that comes across the uh, 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 their doormat and tries to force them to do something that they don't want to do. And they don't know how to handle that. They just 
are scared to death. But they're only scared to death by the act. They're not scared to death by the word. Right, and that's uh, that's something that would sure be would sure be great if we could get more people to act. The problem is, I think one of the main problems right now is that you know if we had uh, if we had Paul Revere riding by and said uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, the regulars are out, the regulars are coming. You know that's a very uh, that's a very concrete thing, and and there's very few alternatives. Uh, to you know, very few uh, things that you can do that is going to uh, is going to meet the demands that, that that puts on the people. I mean, you're going to have to to do one of two things: you're going to go hide, or you're going to uh, uh, to stand in your front yard with your hands up, or you're going to grab your rifle and defend yourself. The problem is that they're not doing that right now. They're doing they're slicing off the little the little things at a time, and and I compare it to uh, to rust. You know, if you if 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 you have you you've got rust that's attacking the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, it's going to bring it down. But how do you get people excited about uh, going and grabbing their their hammers and their steel their their wire brushes and cleaning off the rust and fixing it? They just they 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 can do it tomorrow or the next day. You know, rust is. It's a very slow-moving thing, and they can. There's always time later to get it, but it's going to. It's going to cause that busload of uh, elementary school kids to plunge off into the bay and die, as sure as uh, as 50 jihadists, uh, you know, with uh, bombs. But it's just not something that you can get people excited about. Well, again. There are many, many people in this in this country in this life that aren't going to get excited about anything until it it jumps up and bites them in the butt. Okay, it's just it's just humanity. It's it's the way it is. Right? The uh, the important thing is that you're not responsible for them. You're responsible for you. You're responsible for uh, doing the things that that you need to do to get yourself ready and right. um uh, uh, to um and this is important too not to give in to pessimism not to give in to defeatism not to worry over much about uh, how how God is going to uh, uh, help us save ourselves, okay? That's where faith comes in. That's where you uh, to uh, take, as the founders did, a lot of this stuff on faith. That if you do the things that, frankly, God requires of you, that he'll be there to catch you if uh, things go south. But in any case, you know that you're ha- you have the duty to do it. So, you know, I once was in a situation where it was, it was pretty grim. And um, I made a comment that 
was somewhat defeatist. You know, something like, you know, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. And uh, the guy who was leading this little endeavor said, I don't know either, but don't tell anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because because and it's a, this is a, it's a, it's a human thing, but it but it's so important. Timidity. Well, you, you mentioned it. Timidity is contagious. Cowardice is contagious. Courage is contagious. I mean, and being cantankerous is contagious. Right. Um, and uh, and if you want to talk about duty, we've got the duty to be cantankerous. We've got the duty to um, uh, resist the very best we can. And when we start worrying about what the enemy's going to do to us instead of what we can do to the enemy, well, he's half one already. Let's make the enemy worry about what we're going to do to him. Right, and you brought up something really important uh, in the beginning when you were talking about uh, keeping the, the moral high ground because uh, the the ramifications of that are tremendous. The, the reason that we had so much traction at the beginning of the uh, American Revolutionary War is because that's what we did. The orders to um, to do not fire unless fired upon were extremely important, and the colonists obeyed those orders in in multiple uh, situations, and that allowed the colonists instead of being rebels, because uh, rebels they don't get sympathy. Rebels are stomped out; they're eradicated. Uh, we had tremendous amount of sympathy for many years, even uh, in, in, in some cases to the end of the American Revolutionary War in England because of the fact oh, yes. that we did not attack the, uh, the king's forces, that, we were, that the folks were simply standing uh, in, basically on their, in, their, in their common front yards when they were fired upon for on their no right real to justifiable reason. Yeah, and you you find this in, in, in their writings at the time and, and in the in the, the the sermons of the preachers and everything. They were standing upon their rights as Englishmen, as freeborn Englishmen, under the English constitution. And uh, they viewed um uh the actions of, of what they called the ministry. Uh uh meaning the, the corrupt government in London, um, as uh, the the central problem that they were trying to defend against. They they even, you know, said, you know, many, many nice things about the king until it became obvious that, that uh, you know, the king, the king's the problem here, actually, guys, you know. And, it, and, and, and frankly, it took, you know, guys like Thomas Paine writing, you know, common sense for them to... Uh, to come to the realization that, you know, um, the problem here is uh, is as much the king as it is anything else. Uh, but you know, for 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 many uh, many months, years really, um, you know, you didn't say 
they were very careful not to even say bad things about the king right? Right. because they understood the, the political uh, situation that they were in. Um, but, um, uh, no, it's absolutely, absolutely, they did not see the moral high ground. And, you know, you hear you hear people today, well, all that means is you're volunteering to get shot. Well, okay. If need be. If need be. Right? That's the whole thing. I mean, that not that our job is to stand between the tyrants and the, and the people? And and uh, uh, if need be, then yeah, okay. I mean that comes that comes with the oath. That comes with the duty. All right, yeah. If need be, we'll have to we'll have to do that. I mean, we hope that it doesn't, but you know, if need be, we will, because that's the job we took on when we took the oath. All right, we took on the job of um, of fighting evil without becoming evil. Because, you know, quite frankly, if if all we're going to do is start acting like our enemies, then then what's the point? Okay? I mean, why why are we fighting if we're fighting to become like our enemies? So, um, uh, I mean, shouldn't we all just uh, join the other side if that's the case? You know, I get... Well, I, get... I was just going to say, we can't... Uh... It can't be a situation. Uh, it can't be a situation other than than what happened at Lexington and the North Bridge at Concord. Any any situation where uh, even even one hundred percent patriots, one hundred percent in the right, if they initiated something, if they did something violently to begin with, they've lost all of the all of the high ground. They've lost all of the moral high ground. It just, it can't be that. It's got to, it, you have to maintain the moral high ground in order to, to attain victory. Yeah, and, and, you know, I suppose the other thing that helps me. I might have, I may have lost him. Yep, yep, I'm looking at it, uh, Okay. Uh, if he calls back in, uh, Sam just uh, be looking for his for his number. It looks like uh, it looks like I'll we lost. I'll get him on in a heartbeat as soon as he calls back. All right. All right. But uh, but if you don't, uh, I think that uh, I think we've covered uh, the. We've covered the majority of the things that I that I wanted to talk about, and uh, and I certainly appreciate uh, uh, Mike taking the time uh, to speak with us. And he was just up in uh, in Connecticut uh, to use his phrase, tweaking some noses, and uh, and certainly uh, appreciate him uh, his efforts there. <clears throat> All right. Uh, this next week, or I say this next week. It'll be this Thursday, the day after tomorrow. We'll uh, we'll get back onto our uh, our scheduled broadcasting with uh, uh, Sparks Thirty One. Uh, I told you uh, earlier in the show he's going to be talking about uh, uh, the uh, upcoming classes that we're going to be running December sixth and seventh. 
and about uh, uh, about how to set up your uh, uh, radio communications systems, how to use uh, whatever you have available to you, whether it's FRS radio, CB, ham radios, ways to use that uh, to maintain uh, communication with your uh, with the outside world in the event of a grid down uh, uh, situation. Oh wait, I see. I'm, I'm seeing calling back in here, Mr. Hannibal. Uh, okay, we dropped him again. Uh, we're not doing it. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, but. Uh, that show will be this uh, Thursday, 7 p.m. Central, and uh, and then uh, we've got uh, several guests that uh, were that were moving into positions uh, for December, and uh, and we'll put out a list of those. Okay, I see he's back on again here. Oh, oh he dropped again. That's uh, me trying to dial him in. Oh, are you trying to dial him in? Okay, all right. Uh, well, if we don't get him back, uh, there's no problem there. Uh, okay, guys. Uh, once again, I want to thank uh, the uh, the shooters uh, for the last two days here, uh, Rachel Malone and uh, and her crew, and uh, and my business partner, uh, Mark Martinez, who was uh, running the class the last few days. He did a fantastic job. The class is a very smooth class, packed with information uh, from the minute you get there until the end. There's no, there's no gaps. There's no, uh, uh, there's no downtime. You're constantly uh, being instructed in uh, the uh, the skills and techniques needed uh, for you to defend yourself and your loved ones. And all of our evolutions start uh, with. Uh, with the uh, weapon in the holster and concealed so that you're constantly getting uh, uh, practice in your draws. We're working on our own range, which means we're not stuck in a box. We're not, uh, you're not having to stand there in a box with the uh, firearm out shooting one round every uh, five seconds. Uh, we get you used to moving, uh, drawing that, uh, drawing your weapon getting offline, putting three to four rounds per second into your target, breathing, scanning, and moving on. So if you'd like more information about uh, about what we're doing, uh, you can go to www.battleroadusa.com. Now, I also advise you go to, to go over to Sipsy Street and read what, Mike, uh, what Mr. Vanderbilt writes on a regular basis. It's really sharp information. So uh, you can Google Sipsy Street, and uh, and you can get a line on it right there. And finally, I want to thank uh, Sam, because every time I'm here talking, so is Sam. And uh, I certainly appreciate you being here with me uh, for, I don't know how long it's been now, five years now. And uh, And... Every time I'm here, Sam is here too. He's 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 uh, donating the uh, uh, 
I think I I think I looked it up. Uh, for me, it's about uh, two forty-hour work weeks uh, every year, and uh, I imagine for Sam, it's at least one forty-hour work week uh, that he's donating for uh, for the show. Okay, guys, uh, uh, that's going to do it for tonight, and. Uh, We'll see you again uh, this next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Until then, uh, God bless and keep you. And uh, and remember that you have a duty, a responsibility uh, to do everything that you can in order to maintain our rights and freedoms. Okay? We'll see you this
skies broadcasting lies Billions of people Camels on the streets tracking who we meet And call this liberty It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.